Hello, welcome back to another episode of Disconnect, the outdoor education podcast. I'm Joël Charrier, and I'm thrilled to be here for this 12th episode celebrating one year of podcasting and outdoor education. And also because it's kind of a big deal, I finally got David Sobel to be on the show. And this is an interview that has been a long time coming in a number of ways. First of all, because I'd wanted to interview him since before I even kind of began thinking that I would make this podcast. Or when I first began, I knew that he was on my my short list of people I would eventually want to host. His writings have heavily influenced the way that I teach and uh, my kind of my thoughts towards teaching. And so this is a, a phenomenal uh, interview that I felt was very informative. And I really hope that you actually go out and buy his books. But anyways, we'll get back to that. And then, you know, if it sounds at times like uh, we've spoken before, well, it's because we had. If any of you have followed me on Twitter, you'll know that at one point my computer crashed. And unfortunately, it crashed uh, essentially when I was mid-interview with David Sobel the first time around. So a uh, long time coming and we planned it for a long time. I'd wanted to speak with him for a long time. And then, um, you know, when we finally got down to it, my computer would not respond and ended up crashing completely. I had to get a new system all together. So we got a second interview scheduled and finally we got around to it. So, you know, long time coming, but I'm super thankful for David's time uh, that he, he gave to us. Um, again, I'm thrilled that he was able to join us. So David Sobel is Professor Emeritus at Antioch University, New England. He's the author of multiple books, including two which we'll be discussing today named Place-Based Learning and Childhood and Nature, Design Principles for Educators. Well, my ac- my French accent came out there, for educators. Uh, David Sobel is a thought leader in the field of outdoor and place-based education, and I'm super thrilled to have him join me for this episode today. So I'll leave you with the interview, and we'll come back after for a quick little kind of bonus thing that I'm going to request from you to celebrate this one year of podcasting. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me this morning. Great to be here. Now, before I jump right into my questions regarding your research and your writing, I want to give listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Some of the questions that I had as I was reading through your material. Um, I want to know, you know, as a person whom, whom I've heard described as a thought leader in the field of environmental and place-based education, and I've read every book of yours that I can get my hands on. But all throughout them, I kept thinking, how did David Sobel go from so self-described nerdy kid carrying a slide rule in his back pocket? I'm pretty sure that was from um, the place-based education book. So how did you go from this nerdy kid to, to place-based and environmental education trailblazer, thought leader, and professor emeritus at Antioch University, New England? Uh, first of all, I had a free-range childhood as a function of negligent parents. And so I grew up on the water, on the beach, in an area that was mostly, it was still suburban, but it was still suburbanizing. So there were lots of old farms and lots of salt marshes and a big state park next door across a tidal stream that I could get to. So I spent a lot of time uh, uh, you know, wandering in the marshes and streams. And I was one of those kids that, you know, I left in the morning and showed up in the evening when the bell rang. We had a big bell that got gong to call <laughs> us in. So I think I bonded with the natural world during that time. Uh, and so then it was just a series of steps. I think, um, you know, I, Somewhere along the line, I got, was getting frustrated with uh, academic education and the lack of hands-on education. Um, and even though I was one of those really good students, I just felt like when I finished college, I was really smart and I didn't know how to do anything. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, you know, I aspired to learn how to do stuff. And part of that doing was... Uh, learning about environmental education and the way in which we ought to engage kids in the natural world. Yeah. It it reminds me of an article I read. This was probably, honestly, one of the only titles I remember from an article I read in my undergrad. Granted, it was, it was a number of years ago. Uh, But the, the article was called how to fix boys. And it was basically regarding this same idea of having lots of, of sit down formal type education without having much of this hands on. Uh, And the article posited kind of that, you know, boys tend to respond better to this 
Interesting that you know, that you uh, noted that as part of your development. Right. So I recently read your book, Place-Based Education, Connecting Classrooms and Communities, uh, in preparation for this interview, and it became abundantly clear to me uh, while reading it uh, that place-based education as a larger philosophy or as a practice seems like a really great place to start, maybe even a, a, a perfect end goal. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, yeah, that's a better, not a place to start. It is the place I want to end up in. I would be happy to start with anything less than that. Um, but it seems like a great end goal when wanting to take your classroom outside right. because it applies kind of across the spectrum. It's not just about nature education and something that you made really clear in your writing was that place-based education and environmental education are not synonymous. And in fact, that they're quite different. Uh, how would you define the difference between these two, uh, similar sounding terms? Well, uh, I often use a Venn diagram to say that, uh, there is an overlap between environmental education and place-based education, or that environmental education is one of the subspecies of place-based education. Mm. Uh, but essentially, environmental education in the late part of the 20th century had come to mean tragedy education, or if not just about tragedies, it was science and uh, uh, a little bit natural history oriented. And we saw, by we meaning the faculty that I worked with at Antioch University, saw that environmental education was doomed to be a tassel on the, on the fringe of the fabric rather than the warp of the fabric. Mm. And so we wanted something where <clears throat> the environment or the place was integral to what education was all about. So we uh, actually uh, focus grouped a lot of terms around that time. We talked about, we tried out sustainability education or stewardship education or uh, ecology education and, um, and place-based education was one of the terms. And uh, it wasn't the most popular term in the group that we were focus grouping with, but it was the least negative term. <laughs> And so, so it alienated the fewest number of people. So we were, so we were looking for something that was centrist, you know, that a lot of people can, uh, can say, yeah, I believe in that. Um, actually there's a related term in Montana. They were going to start, um, an, a, uh, ecological heritage program, I think is what it was. It was either ecological, ecological heritage or, or environmental heritage. And they did the same thing. They were, they had a big funder. They wanted to do this kind of work in schools and um, they focus grouped that term and, and it alienated a whole lot of Montanans. Hmm. When they changed the, when they changed the descriptor for what they wanted to do to cultural heritage, everybody was on board. Yeah. Right? So it's this it's this notion of the in, the environment is a flashpoint issue. It still is a flashpoint issue. Right? Of course. Absolutely. Right. So we wanted a term that said what we want is education to be grounded in the local place, which meant the local nature and the local culture and the local history and the local arts and music. Mm -hmm. And so that's place based education is a more inclusive term. Um, and is probably closer in meaning to what was what has been traditional progressive education than um, than environmental education would be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, but all I could think of during that time was a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine. Because I'm thinking, <laughs> right, nature is this flashpoint, and you really do have to worry sometimes about how you present this idea for it to right. to sell. Because place-based education, I think, is a home run on every level. Um, but had it been named something different, uh, yeah, it, it could have been quite um, difficult for some to swallow, if I want to keep it's the actually, And it's actually becoming somewhat replaced or paralleled with nature-based education nowadays. Yeah. Um, which, again, I think is too narrow. Yeah. But... 
I'm okay with it. Yeah, which actually leads kind of into the next question I had for you, which was that in the book, you refer to what you call EIC-based learning or environment as an integrating context. Now, when I read this, it seemed like it was a major piece of the puzzle when discussing uh, education outdoors rather than outdoor education. So do you want to maybe elaborate on what uh, EIC-based learning is? And actually, because you brought it up, perhaps how it might have led to this change in name or terminology? Yeah, that term was uh, created by Jerry Lieberman, who at that time was um, uh, had a big grant from the Pew Foundation to study you know, uh, effective environment-based education. And then he, uh, I think the book that he wrote in the latter part of the 1990s was Closing the Achievement Gap. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and so he, he defined it the way you just described it. It's education in the environment rather than an education about the environment. Some of the education in the environment winds up being about the environment, but it's not all about the environment. Mm -hmm. And so using, using the environment as integrating concept concept and place-based education, I kind of think of as synonymous place-based education is a little more compact and people understand it a little bit more implicitly, I think, but it's, it's about the same thing. And we've seen a lot of this, go on during the pandemic because the idea that everybody hitched onto was, um, Oh, we got to, we have to move classrooms outside as much as possible because of the reduction of viral transmission. So that they were moving to education in the outdoors. And then once they were out there, they had to figure out, okay, how do we do education outdoors? Some of which was the kind of conventional reading and writing adapted uh, but some of which was learning about the environment because you were there and it was stimulating and teachers realized that, oh, this is really good for kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, the, the terminology. So you were saying, and sorry, you'll have to remind me that uh, place-based education is now sometimes referred to as... Oh, sometimes a lot of people are using the term nature-based education. Okay, nature-based. And I, I can absolutely see how given the uh, environment as an integrating context in place-based education, that it could lead people to that kind of uh, change in, in terminology. But again, you're, you're, you're back at that flashpoint back to that kind of, um, you know, some people are going to get behind it wholeheartedly and some people will be a stick in the mud. Right. So the uh, thing thing about that environment is an integrating context. That book actually was one of the first books, even though it got critiqued a little bit in terms of its methodology, it was one of the first books to show the relationship between environment-based education and academic achievement. And that was the goal of that book. Yeah. So it was kind of kicked off the research that showed that schools that did comprehensive environmental education, or what we started calling place-based education, compared to schools that didn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, the findings were that the environment-based education programs always led to, or m- most often led to, greater academic achievement in all the core subjects. Yeah, and that was pretty clear in the book as I read through it. Um, There's right. a lot of mention of the, uh, you know, no child left behind policies in comparison to these, and right. uh, you know, it, it, it was well written. Now I'm curious, uh, what were these critiques in terms of the research methods? Oh, it just was that, you know, there were, it's, that's one of those kind of tedious conversations. (laughs) There weren't good control groups. The statistics they used weren't, the statistical methods weren't up to snuff, that kind of thing. But, but he's, but he, he kicked it off. And now there's been a lot of, there's been a great uh, amount of research, especially a good frontiers in psychology article recently on uh, bits one of those meta studies that looks at hundreds of studies that shows mm-hmm. um, nature's uh, positive effect on learning for children. Yeah. So, 
you know, in, in your definition of place-based education and getting uh, students out into the community, and in fact, even uh, having students be seen as resources to the community, you propose a near-to-far approach to teaching. In fact, you go as far as saying that by adopting a near-to-far model and by keeping our curriculum local, that we can finally grow beyond the constrictions of standardized curriculum guidelines. So, you know, I, I, I teach full-time, as do most of my listeners. How does a teacher who feels a lot of pressure to teach to an exam, to produce results, how do we adopt a near-to-far approach to teaching a curriculum that hasn't necessarily been written with this approach in mind? Is it adaptable? Yes, it is adaptable. It's not, it's not adaptable always. Mm. You know, so for good classroom teachers are probably doing the cool place-based education projects a third of the time or maybe a half of the time. And half of the time they're doing, they're teaching the core curriculum well, right? Yeah. So to assume that you can do this all the time especially within the context of American public education or I presume Canadian public education is too far, is going a little too far. There is, I am going to get back to answering this question. There is a, for instance, there is a, for instance, of the going all the way school in um, Maple Valley, British Columbia, right? There's the, they have a, can't remember what this, the program is called, but it's a program within the public schools that does not have a school facility. And it's a K to eight program where the children are only out in the environment or in uh, local community buildings the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, parents really like it. So, so you can, you can go all the way. There aren't a lot of those examples. Um, the example I like to give in response to the, okay, I'm a middle school teacher. I have to teach, for instance, Greece and Rome, right? I can't, I, you know, there's no way I can teach this in any kind of place-based fashion. So I love talking about my wife, who was a middle school social studies teacher. She has to teach Greece and Rome and history. Uh, and uh, she's in the meeting for all the teachers in the beginning of the school year when the superintendent gives the pep talk. And she's, they're in a downtown theater and she's looking around at the theater and she realizes it's a museum of Greek cultural heritage. (laughs) And it had been built by a Greek immigrant who made his money in grocery stores, then built movie theaters. Um, And he wanted to create a, you know, a pay on to his cultural heritage. So there's statuary and all the different kinds of Greek architecture and the dome of the ceiling has all the Greek gods on it in the, mm. um, in the constellations. And she says, Oh, this is, this is the content that I need to teach. What's the, what's the way in which I could get students engaged. And so she wound up, it was owned, the theater's owned by an arts organization. She talked to the director of the arts organization, the arts organization director said, you know, we've been looking for an interpretive brochure, something we can have, when people visit the uh, theater, so they understand what the history and the relationship to the community is of this place. So she engaged her seventh and eighth grade students in learning Greek culture in order to create an interpretive brochure that then became part of the arts center's outreach to the community. Uh, And so the students, um, learned all the necessary content that would have been if there had been a test, you know, a a curriculum standards test that included Greek heritage. They learned all of that, but they learned it through this project that actually addressed a community need. And it was more real to them because they could see it all rather than have it all be in digital form on the computer. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess your wife had a stroke of genius in that moment right. when she was sitting in this room and looking around. Um, and, you know, I, I, have to, I have to get into this next question because I, I think it hits to the, the meat of it. So the majority of my teaching load is science. 
Um, and there's something you wrote in your book that I absolutely loved. It, it drew me in completely because of this science background that I have. Uh, you called for schools to speciate, much like Darwin's finches. Uh, and that really spoke to me. In fact, when I was reading the book, I would get so drawn in. I would get these really strong feelings of like, wow, this, you know, this is the way. This is what education should look like. And I think a lot of people reading this book would have these same feelings. And uh, then I would, you know, read a couple of pages further and I would start getting frustrated. Uh, and I don't think this comes as a, as a surprise because it feels like you wrote the book this way. Uh, because, for example, uh, at the very beginning of one of the chapters where I, where I, you know, I'd left off the previous one feeling frustrated, you wrote, the problem is you're thinking it sounds great in all these other places, but it'll never work in my neighborhood. The streets are too dangerous. The principal's about to retire, doesn't want to start anything new. The teachers are stressed out by the state testing requirements. And so I'm, I'm thinking of your wife having this, this, you know, light bulb moment as she's sitting there. And I go, oh, but, you know, we don't even do that. All of our staff meetings are just in the basement of the school. I don't even have a window <laughs> in that room. How common is it for teachers to feel this sense of, of incredulity or of doubt when you present them these topics of place-based education? Yeah, well, it's uh, there's always going to be a third of the population that's going to be laggards or a stick in the muds, and they're going to say that don't bother me. I like what I'm doing. Um, but there are, there are so many teachers like you that say, you know, what I'm doing is pretty good, but it could be better. And one of the ways to, and so I'm interested in addressing those teachers that feel this boy, you know, being stuck inside under the fluorescent lights, six hours a day, especially now with masks on is really a drag. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, how can I do this better? And the betterness, there's so many examples of teachers that uh, have said, you know, we had to move the classroom outside. I knew this was going to be a drag. And then I realized that the students were, uh, I had way fewer behavior problems. The, stu the students were much more engaged. Uh, it, it was better for them and it was better for me. And so, um, so there's just the greater stimulation value of being outside of the classroom. But then there's also uh, this mindset that you kind of have to develop in teachers of a forager, right? Is you have to be, uh, you have to be foraging for the good project or the good local thing that's going on that aligns with your curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, so in one case, no, that's not a good idea. It's not a good, for instance, um, again, I use examples from my wife a lot because she's actually in school. She, my wife is now a teacher mentor and, um, she's working with a third grade teacher and, um, you know, they have to write persuasive i think i think a persuasive essay is what you is part of the writing curriculum mm -hmm. and so this project didn't happen but it was a good example of the kind of project that should happen mm -hmm. is that she wanted the the third grade teacher knew somebody at the humane society what was going to happen was that the kids were going to visit the humane society they were going to all choose an animal that was at the humane society they were going to write letters to the editor about that cat or dog and why that, why that cat or dog needed a new home and um, why adopting cats, you know, pets from the humane society was a good thing. Right. So it took the task that was requisite, you know, in the third grade curriculum, writing a persuasive essay and found a good local opportunity to genuinely write persuasive essays. The other brilliant part about it was the whole childhood and nature design principles was that uh, the teachers understood that there's an implicit uh, fascination with between kids and animals. And so writing about it, you know, advocating for an animal that you want to have adopted 
that that appeals to kids rather than the stuff that we often get them to write about. Yeah. So, so it's the teacher looking, you know, it's the teacher looking for the opportunity that um, makes the place-based education thing really work. Right. So, so you did kind of quickly reference there the second book that I want to talk about in just a few minutes, Childhood and Nature. And uh, the animals part actually is brought into that somewhat, um, you know, allowing children to kind of be animals or pretend they're animals, etc. So I, I find that interesting. Um, I, I like that example a lot. Um, and this is a topic I, I want to get back. This is actually the, the very last question that I want to get at at the very end of the interview regarding the current situation with COVID. But I think I, it's a good time to address it maybe a little bit here. A project like that sounds wonderful, but um, from what you've seen in your experience, um, has COVID had an impact on that? Because I, I find yeah. it difficult that uh, to, to to believe, at least at least where I live, it wouldn't happen right now. There's no field yeah. trips at all. I mean, that, and that's what happened. You know, it yeah. was a great idea, but no, it could, it, the COVID situation made it so it wasn't really workable. Yeah. But, um, but it was, it would easily have been workable um, in a not in, you know, in a post pandemic situation. Right. And it could, e it could even have been workable if the humane society did a tour, you know, did a walking tour of the, uh, you know, the caged up dogs and cats and, mm -hmm. you know, went through all of them. And then each child had to pick one. It could have, it could have even worked, but right. you know, there was too many interfering variables, Yeah, but you know, in the, and there's lots of examples of, you know, from the near to far perspective, uh, especially with younger kids, how you, the, the context or the enwrapping place, is first the school itself. So you get kids out of the classroom and into the school. So there's a great example of a colleague of mine who took, who did a whole thing on building a block representation in her first grade classroom of the school itself. Hmm. And it required taking field trips to all the different classrooms and down in the basement. And, uh, and one of the things that got built into the model was um, a representation of the heating system and the water <laughs> system within the school building. Very cool. Right. <clears throat> so it was just, so it was the school building as the context for learning. And then there's the schoolyard, you know, just taking kids out onto the schoolyard or into the nearby neighborhood. And then there's the, kind of the movement outwards. So, but for the young kids, you know, the, the, the community, the context doesn't have to be very big. It's just, you know, first you use the classroom as a place to uh, think about problems. And, you know, I say, let's, if you've got a place-based project could be you're in your kindergarten classroom and the, uh, we need to come up with uh, the chores for taking care of the classroom. Let's let's everybody help figure out what are the chores that have to happen? Uh, how do we figure out a system to equally use them? You know, so, and then you move out into the school. Yeah. So, um, I, I like that because, you know, we think near to far and near, we probably think just, you know, your, your city, your town, your whatever, yeah. but for a grade one <clears throat> or two child near, I mean, school is a big place for little kids. Yeah. So right. that is neat. You're taking a field trip literally outside of your yeah. classroom but you're not going anywhere. Right. And they, really you cool. know, and they, part of it was understanding all the roles of the people in the school, this one, in this one big project this one year. So they went and they, some kids would interview the principal. Some kids would interview the, uh, the, the janitor. Some kids would interview the food service ladies, some, you know, but what a great way to build a sense of community in your own school. Right. That's exactly. excellent. I love that. Yeah. Now, in this book, you describe a lot what you call the co-seed model, uh, which was, I guess, a, an organization of community members, teachers, etc., yourself, researchers, um, right. who, who kind of got the wheels rolling on some of these projects. And it really does emphasize that, uh, one, the community was heavily involved, uh, that administrators were most likely to be receptive, or sorry, who were most likely to be receptive and engaged were actively sought out. And that a nature educator, 
uh, something that you refer to essentially as a nature librarian, was placed in all of the participating schools. And you essentially, well, you actually, you, this is a direct quote from the book, place-based education will go nowhere fast without leadership near or at the top of the school or the district. And again, you know, going with these flip-flopping of, of yay, this is the way I, I need to teach. And wow, what an, you know, I feel like I'm really swimming upstream here for lots of listeners. That's a lot of events that need to line up. And so, you know, talking about the near to far model, I had to ask myself, well, can this start as a grassroots movement? Can this start as a near to far endeavor that will eventually, you know, sow its own seeds later and propagate? Can, can place-based education start in one classroom? Um, yes, it, yes, um, it's hard. Um, you know, it's like the, it's like the concept of, of synergy where if you run with somebody else, you know, it's the running is easier. You can go faster. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, what the research has shown is that one teacher trying to do this stuff all by his or him or herself is less likely to be successful than a small group of teachers trying to do this so that there's some, uh, there's some fellowship or or built-in support. So we always looked in schools when teachers would uh, approach us and say, gee, we really want to do something like this in our school. We would say, okay, what's the, what's the principal's uh, disposition? And do you have any colleagues that you can work with on this? Yeah. Um, So, and I mean, sure you can, you can make your own classroom uh, more place-based or more, I mean, initially what you need to do is make your classroom more problem-based or project-based. And then sometimes your colleagues will say, oh, I saw you were out on playground and you're doing some funny thing with the trees out there. What was that? Right. And then Mm -hmm. sometimes that recruits other teachers who realize that, oh, that sounds, that looks good. Um, But again, you need small colleagueship of small groups of people that are wanting to do the same thing really make change happen. Yeah. Now, I I don't fully understand the American public school system. And I think, um, you know, this all of a sudden seems like a good research topic. Uh, If anyone out there is, is listening and who does research, and I know that there are listeners who are researchers, maybe this is something worth looking into. At least in Canada, what happens is um, in the public school system, you don't typically choose where you want to work. You kind of just take the job where the job is available, and we can kind of transfer internally after that. And what what the unfortunate problem that that creates, and this I've been thinking about actually a lot over the past week, is that you know if, when you show up to an interview and they say, well, why do you want to work here? You know, the, the real answer, doesn't matter what you say, the real answer is because I want a job. Uh, And you don't necessarily get to go to an interview for a school that has this kind of initiative and this goal of getting students outside. So I think it's sometimes difficult because a lot of like-minded educators who have a deep interest in in place-based education are scattered around uh, without the ability to congregate and to to kind of get the ball moving. Because if you had one school where you had, you know, all these individual and it adds up to more than the sum of its parts, I think then it would really snowball from there and and keep growing but um i feel like that's something that needs to change but uh you know well that's that's what's happened like toronto's school board has made a big commitment to education for sustainability over the last couple of decades Mm -hmm. so i mean i think toronto is a good example of a school district with lots of this kind of 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 this kind of orientation built into their school district goals and the curriculum has been created. Mm-hmm. So it has, so there are, for instances in uh, Canada where the whole school district has turned in this direction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will not uh, politicize this podcast, but uh, <laughs> for those who know uh, that I, I live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the huge education review has been proposed which, in my opinion, goes in the opposite direction of this um, speciation of schools. It, right. it tends to want to centralize things. So challenging times, 
But right. you know, that's why that's why I'm hopeful when you say that it can start in a school, and sometimes you just have right. to recruit a colleague here, and and these things can they can happen on their own. All right, so I want to pivot completely here and, and talk about your uh, another book that I've read of yours called Childhood in Nature, Design Principles for Educators. And what you do here is you set the stage for outdoor learning with what you describe as the erosion of childhood. Different authors have touched on this. Richard Louvre coined the term nature deficit disorder. It's kind of been uh, an idea, I believe, in the literature for a while. How would you describe the erosion of childhood? And the erosion of childhood is um, a the lack of contact with the outside world. So I talk about uh, the indoorification, the digitalization, and the academification of childhood. So there's three different things going on there. Hmm. One is uh, that children have children have less range, whether that's in a rural area or an urban area, they have less, they have less ability to be out and about. And this, you know, this long predates the pandemic. Um, and so that, uh, so physically, they're less physically active, and they are more confined, either to their home or yard. Uh, a byproduct of that is digitalization. You know, the acceleration of the digitalization of kids' lives over the last couple of decades has been remarkable. Mm -hmm. I think the current statistic is, you know, kids engage and interact with screens eight hours a day, and they spend a half an hour a day outdoors. Um, and then the academification is this uh, movement down uh in the curriculum from of academic demands made earlier and earlier. So, you know, kindergarten is the new first grade preschool is the new kindergarten. So that the demands being made on children for, uh, for, uh, uh, academic learning, you know, learning your numbers and letters and that kind of stuff gets pushed down. And then that pushes out or extirpates playing with blocks or painting or, you know, doing the stuff that's more the normal expressive modes of childhood. So it's, so the, you know, childhood is now not kids playing together in the neighborhood, but kids playing together, kids playing war games together on screens. Yeah. So it's clear that technology plays a part in this. And, um, you know, I, I have tweeted about this. I think sometimes I come across as a technophobe, um, even though I'm, I'm absolutely not. Um, but I, I think I come across that way because of my views on, on outdoor education or rather education outdoors. And uh, you make the statement that in education, essentially technology has come to be seen as a cure-all, the one tool to solve all educational problems. And you argue that we would be better served if we used the same amount of resources to create learning environments that are equally engaging, interactive, and sophisticated. That's a good piece of software. I love this. I've dabbled in coding before. Writing good code is really difficult. It takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. It teaches amazing uh, logical thinking. It has a lot of virtues. Right. But I don't think that a lot of administrators uh, challenge this. I think they just kind of take it for what it is. You know, you, you buy this software suite for your school. That's how much it's going to cost. End of story. We need this. But we then nickel and dime school beautification project and outdoor learning environment projects. So, you know, I've been probably thought of as a technophobe. And I'm wondering, has anybody ever called you that for your views? I mean, you've written extensively on the topic and uh, if somebody were to accuse you of that, I guess, what would you answer? Yeah, I'm, I'm all for uh, technology as an integral part of the array of what kids should be doing educationally. Uh, but there's the whole, you know, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail mindset. So, you know, if you only have computers, then, you know, all your assignments are basically, you know, Google searches for stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, on the question of, you know, being a technophobe or what's the, what's technology's role in education? Uh, I like to use this example. 
again, from my wife, who was a middle school social studies teacher and a local nonprofit that she had worked with before on other, pro- on other community-based projects, came to her and said, we want to buy the country store and turn it and upgrade it and turn it into more of a community center. And, um, and we'd love for you to help us figure out what, how to make that happen because they needed to raise a bunch of money. So it turns out that the solution was to create a movie about the history of the store and its role in the community and uh, what people's visions of what it could be uh, were about. So essentially, she turned her class into a movie production crew. And they used iMovie and they consulted with a local, a couple of local parents and community members who were filmmakers. Um, and she had kids apply for jobs. So some kids became uh, film editors, some became the film crew, some were uh, interview designers, some did historical research on the store. Uh, and they created a 17-minute movie about the history of the store and what it could be for the community. Uh, she had never done any uh, you know, digital movie production. Some of the kids were a little bit knowledgeable. Um, and then the movie was the primary fundraising tool for the local nonprofit to actually raise the money to buy the store and turn it into a community center. And it was once that whole process happened, which took, you know, two or three years, eventually, some of the same kids that had been on the movie production crew, you know, had been seventh and eighth graders, uh, were then working at the store, you know, so it was, a, so it was a nice example of, of community building, community revitalization, and <clears throat> the appropriate use of technology. So the kids learned lots of technology skills, but they learned them in the service of, uh, of creating something that had community value. Right. And so, you know, you want to use technology for the purposes of, for the purposes of, of creating stuff that has value. Now, yeah. Sometimes you're just using it because you're going to do research on raccoons, you know, you're doing the raccoon report and you're, you know, sure that that's happening, but sometimes it's even better when you're using technology in the service of creating something useful. Yeah. So the key is to be mindful in how the technology is being used, using it for a purpose, not just yeah. using it because it's right. simple or it's there. So in the book, right. at one point you say, and, and so for those who haven't read this book, it really is a book of design principles. There's a short kind of, you know, a couple chapters about the, the background kind of leading into it. But most of the book is about seven generalized play patterns that you kind of um, I, I actually, I don't know. Did, did you discover these? Did you categorize these or, or are these already kind of established in the literature? Yeah. I don't want to analogize myself to the brilliance of Howard Gardner, but the way in which Howard Gardner identified multiple intelligences, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> they kind of emerged over the course of a lot of many years of study. So the design principles kind of emerged for me. And the, the first one for me was um, the special places concept. So I was doing mm-hmm. research. I thought I was going to write a book on map making, which I eventually did. But in the beginning, I was working on a book on map making and I was doing research with kids. And when I, uh, I would ask kids to draw me maps of their neighborhoods, there were always uh, dens or forts in the maps. Yeah. Um, this was I, the first phase of this I did in England. The second phase I did it on a little island in the Caribbean. Uh, and so I, I had always been intrigued with this idea of forts or special places for kids. But when I, you know, did research with a hundred kids in this one little community in England and dens were showing up on almost every kid's map, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. The same thing happened when I was on this little island in the Caribbean, which couldn't have been more different than where I had been in England (laughs) in terms of the nature of the environment. All the, you know, it was in England, it was all white kids in this little Caribbean island, it was all black kids. Um, But the same disposition towards 
forts and special places was there in both places. Mm -hmm. So I said, aha, there's some biological disposition towards building special places or making forts in middle childhood. Uh, So it, it, uh, you know, was deeper than any cultural or environmental factor. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking about Oh, what are the other things that are recurrent in childhood play, especially in the natural world, in all different cultures? And so gradually, I started to see both in literature, you know, uh, anthropological literature, in the research that I would do, I did a lot of asking people to draw maps of their neighborhood by from all those different sources, these recurrent play motifs. Mm-hmm. started to emerge and then i said okay so if these are all if all of these things are basically universal there's some genetic disposition to them uh why not use them as design principles so why not use them to uh create curricular forms because if children want to do these things then you've got the built-in motivation part of the of the educational formula so yeah. there's a great example. I think it's in one of those. My, I'm not sure where it is, but it was a teacher, a fifth and sixth grade math and science teacher in a Massachusetts school. And she gave the assignment of, uh, and it was a really well scaffolded assignment, you know, with lots of parameters of, of making a map of their special place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had 106 students, I remember. And <clears throat> 101 of them knew exactly what she was talking about. And there were five kids that said, huh, special place. Don't understand what you're talking about. So 98% of them or 96% of them knew what she was talking about. Um, and so the assignment was to create this map and it had, it had to be to scale and you had to have good photographs of the place and you had to write uh, lyrical poetry about the place and you had to identify stuff there. So all this stuff that needed to be part of the math and science curriculum in fifth and sixth grade got attended to and kids were really invested because it was about their, you know, their fort or their special place. Mm -hmm. So um, the book is about how you take those design principles and use them to uh, make compelling curriculum. Yeah. And, and you describe, um, that when you implement these without you necessarily knowing it, that some of your students would potentially have what you call transcendent experiences and that this would contribute to their growth as individuals, as students. How, what are these transcendent experiences that you talk about? Transcendent nature experiences are uh, being at one or feeling uh, continuous with the natural world. And they appear to happen uh, semi-frequently in between the ages of five or six or 11 or 12. And there are two really interesting studies about spiritual experiences in childhood. And uh, neither of them reference each other, but they both identify the same kinds of experiences in childhood. Uh, And I think in the, especially in the childhood and nature book, I have some examples from uh, what the kids say. And it's, you know, one woman is looking out over the meadows and, and the down to the river. And she said, all, all at once, I knew that I was, I was not any different. I was the same as the rivers and the meadow and the grass and the stars. Mm -hmm. You know, I was it, it was inside me. It was this overwhelmingly powerful experience and it passed in about five or 10 seconds. Right. Which, yeah. And she says, and I've never had it again, but it still was one of the most uh, important experiences of my lifetime. So I've always felt like uh, what we really are wanting to make happen are those transcendent nature experiences, because I think that's what connects uh, individuals to the natural world. That sense of intimacy and connection makes people environmentally responsible. Mm-hmm. So hopefully in the process of, of engaging kids in things like fort building or the construction of small worlds or map making projects, 
all of a sudden these opportunities for transcendent nature experiences emerge and um, capture kids' imaginations. Yeah, I remember actually another quote from, uh, I think it's Ernest Osborne William, uh, Wilson, that you, you quoted. Oh, Edward um, E.O. Wilson. Yeah, and I remember that one clearly. Oh, I've got it here in my notebook. Something along the lines of, you know, better to be uh, an untrained savage. Uh, here you go. Better to be an untutored savage for a while, not to know the names of, or anatomical detail. Better to spend long stretches of time just searching and dreaming. And I'm assuming that's kind of one of those moments where he had had uh, one of these transcendent nature experiences as, as a youngster yeah. that stayed with him yeah. forever. So that's the goal of these seven principles, essentially. And yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on all the seven principles with David today. I'd, I would like you to pick up a copy of the book. It's an excellent book. It will serve you in your teaching. But uh, we'll just kind of name the principles. And what I want to know, David, is do you have one that kind of maybe is a little bit special to you, one that always kind of spoke to you more than the others. So the seven principles were adventure, fantasy and imagination, animal allies, maps and paths, special places, small worlds, and hunting and gathering. And uh, again, for, you know, to kind of reiterate what David said, these are generalized play patterns that he said he observed. Um, and this was across all socioeconomic backgrounds, across... Um, everything. Basically, this is just the way kids play, is, according to, to your research. Is one of these principles particularly special to you? I'll talk about two of them. The Maps and Paths one is, and that's, so one of the other books, you know, I've written two books, the Special Places book and the Maps book, that essentially try and take the design principles and really go into them deeply. But I wrote a book on map making because I feel like, A, geography is taught wrong um, in most places. And B, there is this disposition of kids to kind of create, a, to create maps of their world. So it's part of the process of understanding uh, where you live to move outward into the world and to map it, whether you do it just cognitively or whether you actually make a physical map. So I've done a lot of work with um, thinking about how to do a developmentally appropriate geography at different ages. And that's what yeah. the Map Making with Children book is all about. Um, the other one that's always uh, that I'm particularly intrigued by is small worlds. And small worlds are dollhouses and model railroads and mm. uh, sandbox play is sometimes small world play. Uh, but the whole, I have a distinct image of the, the only book report that I can ever remember from elementary school was when instead of writing the book report, or maybe it was in addition to writing the book report, but what I remember is making the diorama of, um, of the book Born Free, you know, Elsa mm -hmm. the Lion, Joy Adamson's book about this lion that she, uh, adopts <clears throat> and so i had to make a, a shoebox diorama of mm -hmm. elsa and the kalahari desert and and the shoebox uh diorama is a small world yeah so the um the making of the small world was integral to my engagement with this book and so um the creation of small worlds in the classroom, either little dioramas or or um, or uh, larger expanses of world creation. You know, when teachers are teaching about uh, indigenous peoples, and you make the you make the little village that's got teepees uh, uh, and people and you know Native Americans on horses and that kind of thing, and you make the whole little village. That creation of the small world or the medieval world um, is really compelling and it gets kids engaged in the content mm -hmm. in order to create the small world. I remember being in a fourth grade classroom in Portland, Oregon, where the study was about a um, was a kind of a human, a social justice and small worlds thing where uh, the 
class and the kids were studying this one Indian community, native community that had been flooded out by the building of a dam in, I think, in around the 1950s. And so it was about the injustice of this native community being displaced for the purposes of hydropower. And so they were uh, part of that study for fourth graders was to build what this little community was like before it was flooded in, eradicated. So, and the kids showed me all the little, you know, the, uh, the weirs that they, that the native people had built to, you know, catch, to trap fish. And Mm -hmm. so it was all in this miniature scale and they were really engaged in it because they were having to create this world in actuality. Yeah. Yeah. Now, David, I have to go back a little bit because I would, I I can't not ask this question. When a person makes a statement, like, I think we teach geography the wrong way. I have to go back (laughs) and do my journalistic duty and ask, why do you think we teach geography wrong? We, uh, we teach geography wrong because the example I always use is, okay, so in your first grade classroom, there was, at least in the United States, you know, there were two big maps that were hitched to the top of the blackboard. There's the map of the United States, probably, there's probably an analogous map of Canada that yeah. gets pulled down, of and there's a map of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and to first graders or second graders, that makes no sense at all. I don't mm. understand that kind of representation. What you want with young kids is maps of small places. So in the book, it's you start out with maps of your desk, maps of the classroom, maps of the school, maps of the schoolyard. Uh, you kind of do, you represent and develop uh, con- uh, you know, uh, images of the places that are seeable and walkable around you. Yeah. And you gradually by middle school get to understanding maps of the, of the country and maps of the world start to make sense. But we do that stuff way too early. Yeah. The context like, is too big. Yeah. It, it's back my to favorite, the near to far, really. It's right back to yeah. the near to far. Yeah, exactly. So my favorite example of that is the, the, uh, First grade teacher at the school down the road a half a mile is teaching the solar system to her first graders. Yeah. And um, she, and I say, she was a graduate of mine, a graduate student of mine. And I said, why are you teaching the solar system? You know, this is not developmentally appropriate. She says, it's in the school district curriculum. I got to teach it. So right. she does, she teaches the solar system in all the most child friendly ways you can song and dance and movements and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's one child in the class who loves the solar system curriculum. That child mm-hmm. happens to be a friend of my daughter's uh, and a friend of our, you know, daughter of our daughter's not loves the solar system curriculum. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this solar system stuff. And so we're flying together on a vacation to go down to the Caribbean and it's Linnea's family and my family. And Linnea is sitting in the seat in front of me on the airplane. <clears throat> She's sitting in the seat in front of me on the airplane. And she leans over to her mother and she says, Mommy, which planet is Mexico on? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she knew she could recite the order of the planets. You know, yeah. she did that. My very excellent mother just served us just, you know. She knew that she knew all the names of the moons of Jupiter, but she's asking which planet is Mexico on, which means clearly that she's completely confused about this solar, this yeah. solar system stuff. Yeah. So in first grade, you should be learning the organization of the neighborhood, right? Not mm-hmm. the not the planets of the solar system. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it fits right into all the narratives from from your writings is that. Near to far, start small. I, I have one last question for you, and I have to ask this. This is actually uh, derived from a tweet from Megan Zenny, whom I've interviewed for this podcast, uh, PhD candidate at UBC. And uh, she attended a virtual conference of yours in February. And 
One of the things she wrote really jumped out at me, and I, I referenced it a little bit earlier. She noted that you had discussed the convergent evolution of outdoor play and learning practices across the globe. Um, and I had to ask you, can you describe the convergent evolution that you speak of and certainly what impact has the pandemic had on it? Yeah. Um, yeah, the pandemic will have a fleeting impact on it because this stuff is way deeper than anything that's affected that's affected by the, what I hope will be the fleeting effects of the pandemic. Con, uh, conversion evolution is a, is a cultural anthropology term that refers to the fact that you'll see exactly the same cultural practices emerge in completely different cultural settings that have no communication with each other. Hmm. So in other words, the fact that, uh, so rites of passage are a really good example of, of convergent evolution. So, you know, Native American indigenous peoples, tribes in uh, North America and um, indigenous tribes in uh, Africa uh, developed this exact, really shockingly similar uh, rites of passage for kids in their cultures. So if, in fact, this is happening, if cultures are evolving practices, there's some deeper essentially genetic reason for why they happen right mm. so i've imported the term convergent evolution mm -hmm. uh, into looking at children's play because you'll see uh, kids do exactly the same stuff in different places where clearly the kids have not been communicating with each other yeah. and it's the it's the natural way it's the disposition of the kids to the materials so one of the for instance is is um, Pine duff, when it uh, when a pine tree gets really really rotten, it uh, becomes this kind of brown powdery dust. Yeah, and it always and it always becomes chocolate or cocoa. You know, but they mm -hmm. kids refer to it as chocolate. And the existence of finding the chocolate often leads to the kids doing baking activities. Mm -hmm. You know, so play baking. So that one of the one of the things you'll find in um, uh, nature kindergartens and forest preschools is mud kitchens. Uh, you know, the, pr mm. the provision of cooking stuff outdoors. And so uh, the kids will always be making chocolate cakes because this pine, this rotted pine duff looks like cocoa or chocolate to them. Yeah. And I've seen it in, you know, British Columbia and in Maine and in uh, school in Virginia. And so, um, uh, it's, it, it's fun. Another one, I think the one I might've mentioned in this webinar that she's talking about is, um, making pathways for things rolling down hills. <laughs> okay. Right? It's a, I used to do it. I used to do tennis ball runs on the beach, right? You make little yeah. troughs that, you know, and you make them go over tennis balls, go over jump and go through tunnels and, uh, I saw examples of it in a school in Vermont, you know, tennis ball runs on a hillside and a, and a school in Minnesota where they were using gutters and wheels to make pat, you know, make uh, pathways for things to run down hills. Mm -hmm. So it's kids are implicitly fascinated in this stuff and you'll see it spontaneously uh, occur in all these different places. So it's like the childhood and nature design principles. You know, there's not mm -hmm. only, you know, I wrote about seven of them, but there are lots of others of these recurrent things that kids are fascinated by. Um, and so if you've got, if you have something that you loved doing when you were a kid, it's likely that other kids that are in your classroom will like doing it too. Mm -hmm. And that can become a design principle. Right. Right. All right. So, David, thank you so much for spending time with me. I very much appreciate your time um, and for sharing your, your wealth of knowledge with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Joel. You asked good questions. <laughs> thank you. David Sobel is Professor Emeritus at Antioch University, New England, 
and in my opinion, one of the thought leaders in the field. And I strongly suggest that you go pick up one of his books, see if your library has it, see if your school library has it, or should buy a copy of it. Um, Really excellent reading, and it will inspire your teaching, that is for sure. Anyhow, I have a special request of you to celebrate one year of podcasting with this 12th episode. I want to know, what was your big takeaway? What was your, you know, aha moment? Anything that happened in any episode, what was your favorite moment? Um, You know, your favorite interview, whatever. Tell me about it. Uh, record a small voice memo on your phone record you know a, a 15 20 second kind of voicemail send it to me by email i would love that i would love to feature your voices a little bit in this uh, on upcoming episode so you can always email that to disconnect podcast at protonmail.com i would love to hear from you that's kind of my little extra thing that i'm i'm hoping you can take the time to do for me other than that you can always find me on twitter at outdoor edcast and i've actually already recorded uh, my next episode so i'm hoping that that one will be up within a few weeks you know as soon as i can get around to it i'd meant to have this episode up a while ago but as i mentioned with all of the you know computer issues technology issues etc i had a little bit of a problem uh getting it out and then also Uh, my entire family got sick so that delayed everything on a last last thing for today an absolute shameless plug the music you are hearing in the background right now is the music of one of my co-workers the band is called moonfield and the song is called singularity if you enjoy what you're hearing and i will let it play out for the rest of the episode if you're enjoying what you're hearing go check out their account i will put that in the show uh, notes all right thank you and we'll see you next time